0: 2 Samuel 21, we're going we're to be in verse 15. Once again, today, we're going to find David and the nation of Israel facing off against the Philistines. Philistines are their regular enemy. They are this thing that just shows up, you know, every Monday, whatever it is. I mean, you know, they are the constant companions as it seems. And so uh, today, they're going to face off with them, they're going to face off with their giants again, the Philistines have giants uh, among them, there's four in particular that we're going to look at in our text today, and, and some days it's just like that, isn't it? Some days it's just, man, oh, here we go, I'm fighting another giant. Anybody can relate to fighting a giant? You know, some hands go up immediately right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, we do, we face, metaphorically speaking, we, we face giants more often than, than, than we'd like to, you know, and, and those of you that are dealing with giants, you know, there, there's a saying about motorcycle riders, it's like there's two types, there's those that have been down and those that are going down and with, you know, Christianity and, and walking with the Lord, it just kind of seems like, you know, there's two types of Christians, those that have faced a giant and those that are going to face a giant, you know. Maybe today you're facing a giant. Maybe today you're dealing with, you know, unemployment. That's your giant that you're, that you're facing or, or serious illness that you're contending with. Uh, you perhaps are drowning in bills, more month than money, trying to figure out how, how am I going to make this? And maybe that's, you know, been keeping you up at night. That's the thing about some of these giants that we face that... You know, they just keep us up, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, maybe even last night, maybe you're here sleep deprived because, you know, sleepless about a giant that you're contending uh, with. Maybe your giant is an habitual sin that you deal with. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's, you know, something in your past that haunts you. Maybe your giant is depression or uh, abuse or abandonment maybe maybe your giant is an issue of somebody has let you down and the wounds and the scars go deep from that maybe it's grief that you're carrying maybe the giant that you have is crippling fear maybe the giant is thoughts <clears throat> of suicide the enemy would like nothing better than for the giant that you're contending with to be that thing that takes you out and that that just completely derails you in your faith. And so giants are very real. And, and I want you to get it in your mind today as we as we go through the text here, because what we're going to learn is some lessons about fighting giants. Um, we, we certainly learned some lessons about fighting giants when we went through David f- uh, fighting Goliath in 1 Samuel. But now once again they're they're dealing with the Philistines. They're fighting with four different giants and there's lessons for for us to learn. And uh, we're going to learn from a cast of characters in our, in our story today. We're going to see basically three primary characters. We're going to see a relentless enemy. We're going to see a rundown king. And we're going to look at a reserve force. We start first point, first category, a relentless enemy. 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 15. And we read, When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down, And they fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Now, as we saw last week, the last four chapters of 2 Samuel are not chronological. They serve to highlight various aspects, various events in the rule and the reign of David. And so the focus now is on Israel and their ongoing war with the Philistines. And that's just it, that this war was ongoing. Notice the key word there in 15. It says they were at war again. They're at war again. Four times we're going to see in the next several verses closing out this chapter. We see it here in verse 15. We're going to see it again in verses 18 and 19 and 20 that four times we see this word again used in relation to the fighting with the Philistines, that they're fighting again, they're fighting again, they're fighting again, they're fighting again. And, and over and over again, what's happening here, you're describing consecutive wars, additional wars, ongoing wars that they're having with the Philistines. Now, if you've been with us for a while, and you were with us uh, in, uh, in, in 1 Samuel 17, You saw there that David had his first encounter with the Philistines, and he had his first encounter with a giant there in 1 Samuel 17. uh, He met Goliath, and the text in 1 Samuel 17 describes Goliath um, as a champion that went out from the enemy camp. And that word champion is an interesting word. It literally means one who stands between. And what Goliath's role was is that he was... The one who stood in between. The idea was that he was the authoritative representative of the Philistines. And so he would go out and in the space in between the two forces, he would go out in advance and he would stand in between the two forces as a representative of the Philistines and he would shout taunts and he would try to engage the Israelites in battle and basically, in that place, the one who stood in between said, let one of your men come out and fight me, and whoever wins, hey, winner takes all, this is the way it's going to be. So he was the representative. He was the one who stands in between. And what you under- need to understand is that this is typology. That Goliath is a picture of Satan. And what he does is he is that giant that stands in between you and me, that stands between us and victory. And and so this is a, it's it's highly symbolic here. It's 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 a picture of, of of Satan being this one who stands in between. Now, David when he fought Goliath, he had victory. And that's what happens for us as Christians when we face giants. Well, God brings us through the experience if we hold fast to him, if we don't lose heart, if we don't lose faith. Right, And he will bring us through the facing of the giant and he'll bring us to victory. How many of you have faced a giant and God has brought you through to victory? Let me see. Show of hands, right? Amen. And does, isn't that amazing when God does that? And so God did that with David. But, man, that giant is a multi-headed snake, isn't he? And so you beat him today and he, it's not like it's a one and done kind of deal. No, you're on again. And so what happens here, David had victory that day, but the enemy is relentless. That's our point. He's relentless. And so even though David had victory over Goliath, well, Goliath had sons and brothers who were also giants. And so what happens is, apparently four of them, as we're going to read in our text today, And so David knows that like the Terminator, I'll be back, you know, the the, the giant is going to be back. And so what happens, that's the reason why, by the way, when David fought Goliath and he went down, how did he kill Goliath? Slingshot, right? And what did he grab? Five smooth stones. And that's why. Many people say that he grabbed five smooth stones because, well, he had one there for Goliath and he knew that Goliath had four sons and brothers that were, that were giants as well. And so he was getting the rocks for them as they were inevitably going to attack him. Come back and look at that. And so we read here that David and his servants went down to fight. Now, at this point, let me state the obvious and just kind of camp here for a minute. And that is this, that because our enemy is relentless, we have to fight him. You know, a lot of us maybe will be of the mindset, that we're, hey, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I really don't want to fight. I'd really rather take the path of least resistance. I'd really rather avoid a fight. You know, whatever it is. And so because our enemy is relentless, listen, we have to fight. And and rather than face giants, there are many who will seek to escape. And they escape in various different ways. This is, you know, drugs, alcohol, uh, promiscuous sex, or whatever it is. These are all escape mechanisms that we employ to avoid engaging in, fighting against giants uh, in our lives. Other, another way sometimes that we avoid, you know, fighting our giant or facing our giant is that we go through the motions, but we never really take a stand. Now again, if you'll remember, 1 Samuel 17, this is exactly what Saul did. Saul and the whole army of Israel, they were they were lined up in battle array, which means, you know, they're all dressed up with, with no place to go because they got all of their gear on and they're all lined up and they're all opposing you know, the forces of the Philistines and the giant Goliath, but they won't engage him in battle. And what happens there is that, you know, they're not doing anything about it. And listen, this may describe some of you here today. In that you, 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 you dress up, you're, you're even coming to church, but you're really not engaging the enemy in a practical way in your life. And, and so as a consequence, what happens is it's, it's the same effect that Goliath is there. He hasn't gone away. He's continuing to taunt. He's continuing to, to stand in between you and victory. But you're afraid to actually engage him in the way that he needs to be engaged. And so what happens is you're a poser. You know, you, you, you dress like a surfer, you look like a surfer, you, buy, you, you might even have the trappings of, you know, the board and the, the wax and the, you drive around with a surfboard on the roof of your car, you know, but, but that thing has never been in the water. And there are Christians, we, you know, I got, I, I got the shirts, I got the bumper sticker, I got the, you know, I'm showing up and I, and I carry around a big Bible. But, but, but I've never really dove in, right? And, and, and so, so the thing is, is that we need to understand that we actually have to engage in the, battle, in the battle. And the thing is, is that, look, if you're here today and you don't have any victory in your life against your giant, you have to take a walk with the with question, am I actually engaging in the fight? See, because we read here just out the gate that David... And his servants with him went down and fought. And you just, you know, just to take away, something to take a walk with, are you actually fighting? You know, it's been said, if you, if you, if you haven't had a head-on collision with the enemy, you might be going in the same direction. And, and as long as you're not fighting him, he might, he, he, he might be there. You might have these giants that you're facing. You might be lacking victory in your life. But listen, you know, he'll leave you fairly... In that place, if you're not going to engage him and actually fight against to press through and to, to attain victory. So you have, to, you have to ask the question, am I actually engaging in this fight? My buddy Dave Shepherdson, a pastor at Calvary Chapel in the Weibo, he's got the saying, he says, Christianity is simple, it just ain't easy. It's simple, it's just not easy. And it's a great saying, I love it, because here's the thing. Christianity is simple. The Bible's very clear. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. The good news of the gospel is that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That if we confess with our mouth that we're sinners, uh, believe in our heart that, that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again on the third day in the fulfillment of the scriptures, we believe that, we confess that. Hey, the Bible says you're going to be saved. So that's simple. It's, it's a matter of trusting in Jesus Christ and his completed work on the cross. But the part that's not simple is the hard work of working out your faith with fear and trembling. The part that's hard work is the, the living of the life, the Christian faith, and the trusting God day by day. That is the hard part. Paul said to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's the part that's difficult. Which brings us to our next Character ball here, it's a, it's a rundown king. We see that we have a relentless enemy, but now look, let's focus on this rundown king, David. He goes down with his servants, he fights against the Philistines, and David grew faint. And then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 Shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David, but Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid. So we have here a rundown king. And the, the issue is, is that David here, he's facing his next giant. He's faced Goliath. He was victorious against Goliath. He's faced a number of different foes. And now here he is, he's facing his next giant. And quite frankly, he's tired. And it, and it can get tiring, can't it, living the Christian life? It, it can become burdensome. And, and so what happens here is you've got this giant, and this giant is confident because what's this? He sees that David is tired. He sees that David is growing weary. And this giant knows that he's got momentum on his side. Paul said this to the Ephesians. I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses, and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the other. Now the idea of this phrase here, when he says that you once walked according to the course of this world. The idea of that phrase there is that of a river current. Okay, And and what Paul's saying is that there is a natural course. There is a natural flow of this world. And and he's saying that um, everybody without Jesus Christ is in this current. This naturally follows this flow, I remember when I was a kid, we used to, we had, you know, the gutter running down the street, and it, and it ran to the to the sewer, right, it went down the street, around the corner, and, and, and it collected in the sewer there, and, and we would take sticks as the water was running down the gutter, and there's, you know, there's stuff in the gutter, you know, there's, there's, there's dirt in the gutter, there's maybe some rocks in the gutter, there's, there's grass clippings or whatever in the gutter maybe an old newspaper laying in the gutter, whatever it is. And so the water goes down, and we would take sticks, and we would race the sticks. You know, and we'd all, we'd all have a stick, and we'd all have the identifier on it, and we'd drop it all in at the same time. And then those sticks, they would go down the gutter. Now, some, they took different paths, right, as they encountered the different obstacles. Some get caught in an eddy and just sort of kind of loop around a little bit. But inevitably, they all wound up down the sewer, down the drain. It was just a matter of time and course of which one was going to get there first. Now, it's a great picture of what Paul is describing here because he basically says, "Look, life is like this current; it just it goes. And without Jesus Christ, without being born again, without trusting your life to the Lord, you just inevitably your destination is the sewer. And, And it's and it's not you know it's not if it's only when it's going to get there." And, and a lot of people in this world are like me and my friends. The, really, the race was who's going to go down the sewer first. That's who won. And that's what the world says. The world says whoever gets down the sewer first wins. And so there's this, this, this course that, that we get caught up in. And so that's the picture that Paul's painting, that the world follows a very defi- definitive, very definite current. I and mean, you see this current in culture you know you turn on the television you watch the advertising you see social media trends you you know see what's happening in the education system or in arts and entertainment and you see the current of this world and it seems normal cuz that's what everybody's doing but it's all headed down the drain so what paul says is look you're born in that river you're all heading down to the sewer and he says that there are several at forces at work to keep us in that sewer. This is what he says here in, in, in these three verses in Ephesians chapter 2. He talks about the course of the world. He talks about the prince of the power of the air. He talks about the lust of our flesh. All these different forces that are at work to keep us in the current. To have us going down, down the sewer. And what happens is Paul says, look, that but that ain't you anymore. Because what happens is that when Jesus saves us and turns our life around... Now what happens is we're saved. Now we're still in the current. You know, it's not a matter of you confess faith in Jesus Christ and all of a sudden it's like, he takes you out. No, you still are in this world. You still are caught in the current. So what is it that defines us as Christians is that, well, we fight against the flow. And so we're fighting against that current and life will be marked by a difficult swim upstream. And isn't that the truth. Haven't you felt that way? When you try and take a stand for righteousness sake. I was just talking to, 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 you know, one of the folks here in the church this week, and she's telling me about her daughter. And she at school has this assignment, and as she's teaching, you know, uh, you know in, her, in her class assignment, as, she, as she's speaking, well, she, she's talking about, really, how a Christian is supposed to behave in this world. That's really the testimony she's given. And wouldn't you know it, right now, this little girl is going through all kinds of trial and persecution from her fellow classmates. Why? Well, because she took a stand for righteousness. Jesus said this. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad... For, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And, and so our job is that we need to fight against this current. And, you know, the world stands up and applauds and makes heroes out of, you know, those that 50 million babies killed plus in abortion. And the world will applaud that all day long. They will shout you down and vilify you as an enemy of women if you dare to fight for the rights of the unborn. I mean, let's forget the fact that 51% of those that are aborted are women. But the world, see, they're in this current and it seems normal, and it's like, oh, we, you know, we we're fighting for women. No, you're fighting to kill women, is what you're fighting to do. But man, you say that and it's and you got a war on your hands and you will be persecuted. Why? Because you dare to swim against the stream. And honestly, and here's the point it's exhausting. Some of you, maybe today, you're exhausted. You're tired. David, he's been fighting the good fight. Now, and he's not without sin. He's not without mistakes. He's not without some, some real train wreck decisions that he's made. But David, by and large, is a man after God's own heart. That's God's own estimation of David. And so now here he is, and he's engaged in yet another battle with the Philistines. He's fighting yet another giant in his life. And man, he's tired. And maybe you're tired today. What do we do with that? Well, Ishbi Banab, the enemy, the giant, here's what he does with that. He says, I got an opportunity. He goes, man, I got, I got all this in my favor. David's weary. I've got a bronze spear with a 10-pound tip on it, and I'm a giant for crying out loud right? And this is the enemy. He just wants to have you for lunch. And so here's the thing. And you notice there in verse 16, it tells us something else. It says that he also, it says that he had a new sword. He's got a new sword. He's got, you know, I got a brand new sword. Just looking for someone to run through with it kind of deal. It's interesting you look at this because depending on what Bible translation you have, different translations translate this word sword differently. Some of them Translate it as a new sword. Some of them translate it as a new weapon. Some translate it as new armor. And that's very intriguing. It's very interesting. Because here's the idea. Here's the point. It reveals the shrewdness of the enemy. Because what happens is that he changes things up. He's, he's not predictable in your life. He's unpredictable. He changes things up. And, and so just when you think you got him figured out, he gets you another different way. And so when, again, when David defeated Goliath, he nailed him with a smooth stone. And you read the text and it says it sunk into his forehead. In other words, he prescribed a rock to go in the giant's brain and then I'm going to win. Right? And then he took four smooth stones in addition to the one that he had reserved for Goliath. Maybe even wrote Ishbi Banab on one of these rocks. So this one's for you, my friend. And so I'm going to take you downtown to Chinatown, just that, just just like I took Goliath. And Ishbi Banab shows up and he says, guess what? I've got new armor. And this piece of armor now has got a little protective thing right here. So this ain't sinking into my forehead. That you're not going to get me the same way you got Goliath. And, and, and so it's, it's interesting, it's intriguing just to consider this because what is up with David? Well, David, he can't phone this thing in. He's got to be on the top of his game. He has to be committed. He has to be diligent in his walk. Paul's words, hey, see then that you walk circumspectly. Your head on a swivel, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Satan wants to have you for breakfast, man, and you got to watch out for this thing. Well, David's got to dig deep, but listen, he's tired. And some of you today, maybe you're tired. And what's prescribed? He needs help. Truth is, he needs help. Look, we all need help to fight the good fight. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. We need help. We need somebody by our side. We need somebody to pick us up when we're down. We need somebody to encourage us. Do you have that? Do you have that today? And I'm especially talking to you men, saying, do you have that? Because men, what do we like to do? Man, I want to isolate. I, I just want to say, I got it. I, I, I am not stopping and asking for directions. i can not going to do it. <laughs> and so we won't. And, and, and if you struggle, you don't tell anybody. You're not going to let anybody in. My wife was reading me an article uh, we were doing some work around the house yesterday and she was reading this article. She said, Hey, can I read this to you? It was a it's an article, it's just talking about pastors. And it was talking tragically about some pastors that had killed themselves. And and and, and you know, <laughs> in a subtle way of me telling you that I that I'm feeling suicidal, because thank you, Jesus, I'm not. But but you know, but but these guys basically the article is talking about these guys feel like they gotta have it all together, like they got they they gotta have you know this exterior that tells everybody. You know, I'm good, there's nothing to see here kind of thing, and they, and they can't be vulnerable. They can't let anybody in. They can't tell anybody I'm hurting. They can't tell anybody, look, I'm struggling with this or with that or, or with the other thing. And, and that's not unique to to, to pastors. That's, 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 it is pretty classic male behavior is what it is. Now, now, you gals, you're not let off here because you also need to let people in. And sometimes, you know... I mean, Filter engaging right there. <laughs> um, hey, girls can be mean sometimes, can't they? And you know, you, you, you let somebody in once and they burned you bad you know they betrayed your trust or whatever it is and maybe you know you've had a bad experience and so so the thing is is that man we every last one of us needs help but but gosh whether it's an experiential thing or whether it's just a, the way I'm wired thing or whether it's a pride thing man we don't always invite people in to help we don't always let people help we don't always foster the relationship of of someone being there to watch our backs, to lift us up. I think about Paul in, in Ephesians 6, he's describing the armor of God and his exhortation is, look, there's a, you know, I'll paraphrase, you know, there's a major battle taking place. It's not, in, it's not a battle of flesh and blood, it's a battle of spirit, it's a, it's a spiritual battle. And so he's talking about how we need to be equipped to fight this spiritual battle and he talks about the, the armor of God so he, he says, you know, put on the belt of truth and the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of righteousness and the, you know, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and, and, and so on. And, and so he, he describes, and you know, metaphorically, he's just sort of describing the armor uh, that, a, that a soldier would wear into battle and he's liking it to the, the armor that we put on, spiritually speaking. But now when you read through this and, you, and you, what you realize, among other things, you go, gosh, Well, there's nothing to cover your back in everything that Paul outlines there. And the Roman soldier didn't really have a lot of stuff there to cover his back. But he had the greatest thing to cover his back. He had his fellow soldier. See, because we're supposed to fight back to back. And and so the thing here is that God wants you and me to fight this Christian battle. He wants us to engage the enemy. He wants us to fight against the the, the giants that are going to come against us. But he wants us to do so together. He wants us to do so covering each other. And and just a simple question, who's got your back is my question. Because what we see here as we continue is that Abishai has got David's back. Verse 17 well, verse, verse 16 ends that uh, this, this, this uh, Ishbi Banad thought he could get David because he grew faint. Verse 17, but Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and he struck the Philistine and he killed him. And then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out, no, uh, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. In other words, they're saying, Look, David, you're past your prime. There might have been a time when you belonged out here fighting, but now you can leave it to us, okay? We're, we're gonna, you're, that season of your life is past, and we need you home on the throne being the king and, and delegating and sending other people out to fight, but, but not you so much anymore, David, okay? Just <laughs> admit the fact that, you, that, that you're old and you don't belong out here kind of thing. And so this is what they say. Um, verse 18, and now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And then, okay, God help me. Sivashai, <clears throat> the Hushite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. And again, verse 19, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jaar, Or again, that guy right there, the the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. He was a bad dude. Uh, Verse 20, yet again, there was war. You, You sensing the theme here? There's war. Again, there's war. Yet again, there's war. There's war again. There's war again. And here's a giant over here. And here's a giant over there. And there's a giant there. And over and over. And so yet again, verse 20, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Just in case you didn't get that, it clarifies it here. 24 in number, Right? <laughs> And he was also born to the giant. Now, this is not as uncommon as you might think, by the way. Google it. Uh, you will see all kinds of people with six fingers. It is just weird, right? Six fingers on their hand, six fingers on their toes. I don't, I, I don't necessarily know why. Six fingers on their toes. Yeah, it's weird. I told you. Um, I don't know why he puts it here. You know, maybe to tell us that he's got, you know, six fingers to hold a sword with. So it's just that much more strength. I'm not sure, but, but this is a weird dude, and he's a giant, and he's bad, and he's, and he's, and he's fighting with, with you. So, so not a good thing. Uh, verse 21, and so when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four, speaking of the giants, were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David, by the hand of his servants. Now, five times in these five verses, twice in verse 17, and then again in verse 18, 19, and verse 21, what we see is that David's men, we read about them striking down or killing the giants. And in every instance... The verb, the verb stem that's used in the, in the Hebrew is what's known as a high stem. And, and what that means is that it, it, it's an emphasis on causative action, okay? These guys, they killed this guy. They killed that giant. They killed that giant. They killed that giant. It's an emphasis on the causative action. Here's what that means. What it means is it wasn't just a blind, it wasn't just blind luck, that, that, that caused them to strike down and kill the enemy. It wasn't just it wasn't that they got lucky. No, what it was, it's speaking of the skill with which the Israelites caused the enemy to be struck down. David said this in Psalm 144, verse 1. He said, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers. For battle, and the point is, is that these men had to be trained. These men had to be trained how to kill giants. Think about it. What was the Israeli army doing when little David showed up and went out and killed a giant? Answer: Nothing. They weren't doing nothing. But now what has happened is that David has stepped up. David himself has led them. David himself has trained them. David has killed a giant. And so now what's happened is that these men have themselves become giant killers. You see where I'm going with this? See, here's the issue is that, I'll put it this way. Dads, what are you doing? to train your children to be giant killers? Moms, what are you doing to train your children to be giant killers? And when I ask you that question, if the answer doesn't come to you immediately to say, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, then chances are more than good then you're not doing anything to train your, train your kids to be giant killers. See, that's the point is that David grew weary. David had to have someone with whom that he was going to pass the baton on to. He grew weary. He was going to get his own head handed to him. Like he once handed Goliath's head to him. But what had happened was that David had trained his men how to kill giants. Matthew Henry said this. He said, every Christian is enlisted under Christ's banner to strive against sin against sinful doctrines, sinful practices, and sinful habits and customs, both in himself himself and in others. You see, the thing is, is that, yes, you need to be a giant killer, but you need to be teaching others how to be a giant killer as well. This is what's known as discipleship, and this is what we're called to. And can I just tell you, here at Reliance Church, this is foundational. If I had to sum up in one word what are we about, other than Jesus... It would be discipleship, making disciples who know, love, and serve Jesus Christ. That's what we're all about. We want to make disciples. Why? Because you can't just have one person killing a giant. Because there's more than one giant. And so this, man, is so critically important. And like I said, if you can't right now really name how you're training your children up to kill the giants in their life, because they're facing giants, trust me. They are facing their own giants. Then what's happening is that you've just turned them over to that flow, that current. Their little stick is, you know, encountering its own obstacles, but it's heading for the sewer, see? And what's going to happen is you've got more than a few people that are stepping up who are willing to train your kids how to engage in their philosophy of life. The world's begging to train your kids if you want. I was reminded of a, of a quote that um, was on MSN uh, not too long ago, uh, MSNBC. Uh, and uh, it was Melissa Harris Perry. Uh, she recently was in the news because uh, she, she got fired from her, from her TV show uh, there on MSN. But, um, but several years ago, she was doing a, a spot. for for MSN, and, and they're filming her, and basically she's talking about your kids. And here's what she said. She said, we've always had a kind of private notion of children, that your kid is yours and totally your responsibility. Yeah, he is mine. Thank you very much. But she goes on. She says, we haven't had a very collective notion that these are our children. We have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents... Or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. That ought to freak you out right there. Because what she's saying is, no, 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 you, you know what? You can't say that this kid is mine and I'm going to raise him the way that, that I'm going to raise him. She's saying, no, no, we, we're going to play a role in how we raise your kid. And, and you see this loud and clear I mean, in so many ways, I mean, I pick out so many different policies, not, not the least of which is the fact that <clears throat> right now, under state law, your child can go to the school nurse and your school nurse can take your child to get birth control without your knowledge. School nurse can take your kid to get an abortion without your knowledge. Why? Well, because there is this collective notion that, hey, listen, your kid belongs to the whole community. It doesn't just belong to you. That's the reality that we live in right now, folks. And so if you fail to say, well, I'm going to train up my child in the way that he should go so that when he's old, he'll not depart from it, which is our biblical mandate as parents, if you won't do that, then the world says, cool, we'll train him up to fit right in with the current and the flow of where we're going. And you go, well, gosh, that's just, you know, that's some MSNBC, some, you know, some host. No, she's not just that. I mean, she's a political science professor at Princeton University. She she now she, she doesn't work at Princeton anymore. She works at, at uh, Wake Forest University now, where she's the Presidential Chair Professor of Politics and International Affairs. So so this is you know this is the education system the, the you know that our that our kids are in. I mean we have to understand this isn't just some random opinion. This is the agenda. So the world, here's my point. The world is more than happy to step in and to disciple your kids. And so what we have to understand is that <clears throat> no our mandate is to make disciples. See, listen, Proverbs 21:30 tells us there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel Against the Lord, and if we'll commit to training up our kids in the Lord, then that's what is going to thwart the current counsel of the world. <clears throat> I was having a conversation with a kid, uh, member of our of our church, was a member of our youth group, uh, and um, and he's going to tactical leadership on Monday nights, and putting all you men to shame right now is what what he's doing. I mean, he's, he's a young kid; I think he's seventeen years old right now. Did I get that right, Mike, 17? 18 years old. And so, so here, here he is. I'm talking to him, and in, in, uh, in, it's cat's out of the bag. It's Mike Havercroft's Mike uh, son, so um, Gavin. So I'm talking to Gavin. Gavin basically shared his testimony with me, and what happened, his testimony, short version, he got caught up in the current of the world, man. And what happened was that, that he began to just become everything that his parents hadn't raised him to be. What did his dad do? I'll tell you what his dad did. His dad circled the wagons. He dropped everything and he said, this is my ministry right now. And Gavin told me that changed his life. His father said, I'm going to leave everything and I'm going to focus on you because you are my priority, you're my son, and this is not how we've raised you to be. And his son now is on fire for Jesus Christ, leading his friend to saving faith in Christ just, just a couple of weeks ago, brought him here to meet me last Sunday, walking with the Lord, having victory in his life. And it all comes back to this issue of, look, we are called to make disciples. We can't do it alone. And, and it is so critically important that we understand How this all fits. And and it leads me here to my final point, and and it's it's a part of this, so so stay with me. It's it's this. It's that you can't give what you ain't got. We're called to make disciples, but we have to ourselves be a disciple. Chuck Smith used to always say this. He says, look, Christianity is like the measles. You can't give them unless you got them, right? Right? And, and you read Deuteronomy. I'll put it on the, the, the screen for you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. <clears throat> Here's what it says. It says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What he's saying is, look, this has got to be the way that you operate. Now, the focus is on kids, but let me just put a big, broad application, discipleship. It's saying that your entire lifestyle has to be a, an opportunity to make disciples, to, to disciple. In particular here, your children, in context, your children, but in general, we as the body of Christ need to disciple one another. And the way that I live my life, the coming into my house, the going out of my house, it's on my doorpost, it's, it's, on the, it's before my eyes, it's the as we walk along the way, as we're talking, as we are, let me use a current popular Christian phrase right now, doing life together. Okay? We're making disciples. We're saying, look, this is, this, is, this, is, this is the way that you should go. This is the way that you should walk. And I want you to see what is all predicated upon. Would you please look with me right there? At the beginning, he says, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You can't give what you ain't got. And so, so what we have here in our text, and as we close, is we have giant killers. We have a man who himself has faced his own giants and fought and overcome his own giants. And we have a man who has trained other people to be giant killers as well. And I ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing? Because as we established up front, there's two types of Christians. Those that are facing giants and those that are currently and those that are going to be facing giants. And we need to be a giant killer and we need to be surrounded with other giant killers. And it only happens when each one of us does our part to engage the enemy and to make disciples who will engage the enemy.